31. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, as he approached Bethage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell them, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had said, told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The word of the Lord. May we pray. Lord, help me. You're fallible, fallen, finite, frail servant to declare your word with boldness, with clarity, with practical application, with simplicity, that we would be able to draw near to you through your word that we have heard read and then preached and then eaten. Through Jesus our Lord we pray. Amen. Now I want you to notice some things in this text because I think it's very striking. Jesus has been in Jericho and he's going up from Jericho to Jerusalem. And back in the year 2000 in February, my son-in-law John Yule and I uh, traveled from Jericho up to Jerusalem. It's a wilderness place. In fact, as our bus stopped on the way, I fell among thieves. <laughs> that is not exactly a joke, because the bus stopped, and we got out, and there were Bedouins there who were wanting to sell trinkets. And so, who did they go after? They went after me. Why? I was on a busload of preachers. And they went after me. Why? I've always asked that question. Why? Why did they go after me? I think I had a neon sign on my forehead that said, gullible. In fact, the guy actually took off his headband, and he put it on my head, which I did not want, because I value uh, having a clean scalp. And then he follows me on the bus until our Israeli tour guide who had been in, in the Israeli army, uh, forced him off the bus. So I ended, but I did like his trinkets. I gave them to people, <laughs> really cheap souvenirs. So, but anyhow, I've been on that road from Jericho going up to Jerusalem. But it's interesting, I've also been on the Mount of Olives. And it's interesting, the Mount of Olives is higher than Jerusalem. And you look down on Jerusalem. But you, if you look at the Bible you'll discover that people are always referring to going up to Jerusalem, even if they're, quote, up north. So people in Israel, the northern kingdom, go up south because Jerusalem 
is something extremely special. Let me submit to you an idea. The Garden of Eden, we probably picture it like, I don't know, like Tom Wright's farm. Just kind of flat but hilly. But if we really analyze the Bible, the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. It wasn't a jagged mountain like we think of mountains, but it's on a mountain. And where is it today? We don't know because the topography, terrain, even the continents themselves shifted radically in the days of Noah. But we do know that it was somewhere near the Tigris and Euphrates River, rivers, but it was on a mountain. That's why in tradition after tradition from this people and that people, you want to have a ziggurat. You know, my wife and I climbed the, uh, one of the pyramids outside of Mexico City. Pretty amazing. We climbed up to the Temple of the Sun. Wow. All over the world, people have towers to reach to heaven. What do they mean? In the traditions of people, it is that the Garden of Eden was a beautiful, fertile garden on the top of a mountain. And you see the same thing in the Tower of Babel, don't you? People were not naive in the sense that they thought that they could somehow or another climb all the way into heaven, but they are trying to do something in building the Tower of Babel. They're trying to recreate Eden. That's what they're trying to do, recreate Eden. And we see it also in, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar built the hanging towers of the hanging gardens of Babylon. Lush garden because of the tradition that we know that ancient people believed the Garden of Eden was a mountain, a lush, fertile mountain. And we see something else, something interesting. God meets with Israel on top of Mount Sinai. Once again, Sandy and I have climbed up Mount Sinai, a very treacherous climb once we returned the rent candles and because uh, they wouldn't go up any further. But we had to go on hand and foot in the dark because we were going to be up there in time to watch the sunrise. That's where God met with Moses. And that's why on top of that mountain you find a mosque because the Muslims respect Moses. You find an Orthodox church, and you find a Roman Catholic church on top of that mountain. And we got up there in the dark, and we had a worship service on top of Mount Sinai as the sun rose over the desert. It was an amazing sight. And then we went to walk down. And Sandy and I gasped as we saw what we had come up in the dark, as we saw the uh, treacherous path but we made it down. Now, what's interesting is God commands Moses on Mount Sinai to build a tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? The tabernacle is where God met with his people. But it's flat. It's down below. It's where Sandy and I had spent the night, the night before. It's flat. But that's where the tabernacle was. But what's the tabernacle? Inside the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. 
And there on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, God told Moses, there I will meet with you. And God did. He spoke to Moses, and through Moses, he spoke to the people of God. And as long as God's people were living in tents, God lived in a tent. And then when God's people settled down, God commanded that a temple be built as his people were living in houses of wood and stone. So he commanded that a temple be built for him. And he met with them. And in the year 966 B.C., Solomon dedicated the temple. And the Shekinah glory of God, that glory of God that had been on top of Mount Sinai, that had come down in a pillar of fire and smoke, that pillar of cloud came inside the temple just as it had come inside the tabernacle. And so there you have it. That's why the children of Israel, whether they're living in the far north where Dan was or whether they're living in the far south where Beersheba was, they always referred to Jerusalem as up. So as Jesus is going down the path from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem to the temple to the city of the great king, he is reflecting that special place. The key here again is understanding something. God wanted to meet with his people. That's why one of the names that the Messiah would receive is Emmanuel, God with us, God with us. Now there's something else here we find as he comes down uh, Mount, uh, from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And we see something here. The people recognize exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus is riding on a donkey, a donkey's colt. And that takes us to the prophecy of Zechariah. People want a military hero as their Messiah. But God prophesied that the military hero, the king in the line of David, would come humbly riding on a donkey. And then you see the people recognize it, and they begin to shout. They begin to quote. They're quoting from Psalm 118, verse 26. There in Matthew, excuse me, in, in Luke chapter 19, verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that offended people. Nothing offends people quite so much as worshiping Jesus. And they got very upset. And so they begin to tell him, you need to tell your disciples to shut up. But Jesus refused to do that because Jesus acknowledged himself as the eternal son of the eternal God. And he accepted that when people said, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? He accepted that, yes. Now then we come to this very striking thing as in verse 41. Bottom of page 1632, Luke 19, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. That's why I've entitled the sermon, Triumphal Entry. This isn't a triumphal entry. This is a man lamenting. This is a true patriot, burdened for his people, burdened, burdened for his nation, Burden for people he loved. He weeps over it. He sees the city and he weeps. This isn't the king coming in on a white charger. This is the Son of God, the Son of David, 
coming to a city that he knows because he sees into the future what's coming. Look at what he says in verse 47. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring your peace, but now it's hidden from you, what would have brought their peace? You know what would have brought their peace? Repentance. Repentance. What had happened to God's people? Well, God's people rebelled throughout the whole history of the Old Testament. They rebel even in Egypt. They rebel while Moses is on top of Mount Sinai. They rebel again and again and again. And so in keeping with the warnings of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God fulfilled the warnings, and he wiped them out. The northern kingdom fell, and then the southern kingdom fell. It's amazing when you think about it. Because of the curses. Do you know that the temple of God in Jerusalem was destroyed on the ninth day of the Hebrew month of in 586 B.C.? And do you know that after the temple was rebuilt and then under the great remodeling program of Herod the Great that began in 19 B.C., do you know that that temple was destroyed one generation after Jesus utters these words? Forty years later, on the ninth day of the Jewish month of A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed again. Coincidence? I think not. It's destroyed again. And look at what Jesus says. If you had known what would bring your peace, why did they need to repent? Because what happened among God's people when they returned from the Babylonian captivity is they devolved into various groups. You had the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a mixed multitude who lived in the north. They had replaced Israel. And under the Assyrian Empire's policy, they depopulated and repopulated so that they could control the territory they conquered. And so the Samaritans were somewhat of Abraham's descendants and somewhat of the descendants of the various people groups controlled by the Assyrian Empire. And they held to a corrupted form of the religion of the Old Testament, only recognizing the first five books and their what we call the Samaritan Pentateuch, it still exists. And do you know that in the land of Israel today, the Samaritans still practice Old Testament religion? Nobody in the world practices the Old Testament religion, but the Samaritans, they still do animal sacrifices. They still observe those things because they follow the first five books of Moses in their Samaritan Pentateuch. And then others come about. We find, for example, the Pharisees. And you understand the, the lack of strictness. People always are reactionary. That's the greatest lesson of history. People are always reactionary. If this is bad, then we need to do this. Whereas somewhere in the middle is where we ought to be. Always reactionary. And so what evolves out of that, a concern for strictness, is what we call Phariseeism. The Pharisees believed the Bible was the Word of God, all the way from Genesis through Second Chronicles. Because the Hebrew Bible 
is exactly like our Old Testament, except the books are in a different order and sometimes have different names. But all of the words in our English Old Testament there in the pew are found in the Hebrew Bible of the Jewish people, which they call the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Kadavim, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And so what happens is, with Phariseeism, if doing this is bad, it isn't a reaction, the Pharisees say, well, if you can't do this, then you can't do this either. For example, let's say that you had a rule that said you could only uh, go a mile, which is not what they had. The Pharisees would go beyond that. They always wanted to build a fence around the law. That's what Jesus is always tangling with the Pharisees over, and he refers to the traditions of the elders. I have a good friend from high school who's Jewish. She's a conservative Jewish woman, and I'll tell you, Jewish people don't study the Bible. They study the traditions of the elders. That Pharisaical tradition, the oral law, never written down, but after the fall of Jerusalem was written down, that's what we look at. And it tells you all kinds of things. You know that the Talmud gives even, it even has a prayer recorded for a successful trip to the toilet. I mean, it's all spelled out. Not just the rules of the, of the Old Testament, but we're going to spell it out for you. And that's what Jesus is dealing with, the Pharisees. The problem with Phariseeism is it doesn't deal with the heart. And we need to understand something. The religion of the Old Testament is not about rules and regulations. Fundamentally, it's about a relationship with Yahweh, relationship with the God of Israel. A relationship, not rules, and that's what's critical. And the Pharisees didn't understand it, and therefore they become extremely critical of Jesus because he was always breaking the traditions of the elders. The Torah, the law of God, allowed people to pluck grain when they were hungry in, in somebody's field. And Jesus encouraged his disciples because they were hungry to do that. And he's always being have fault found with him because he's breaking the traditions of the elders. Then you had the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees were like the Samaritans. They only recognized the first five books of the Old Testament as God's word. And they didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in life after death. They were sad, you see. Terrible joke and I stole it from others. So you have those people. They're the party of the rich and the powerful. They're the elite because the high priestly family comes from the Sadducee party. Then you had the zealots. They were angry and mad. You know, it's interesting if you're there in Luke, just turn back to the beginning of the chapter, or, or the next page, 1631. In verse 11 of Luke 19, he tells a parable about a king who went off to get a kingdom, and his people didn't want him to get that kingdom. Do you know what happened? Herod's son Archelaus went to Rome to be confirmed as a king to succeed his father. And when he got back and had been made ruler over the Jewish people, on the very first Passover, after Archelaus became the ruler over the Jews, how did he do? 
He killed 3,000 Jewish people on the Passover. First Passover after he became ruler. So you have the zealots. The zealots hated the Romans, of course. Nobody likes to be occupied by a foreign army, but that's the nature of civilizations. Foreign armies conquer, and they rule, and they extract things from the conquered population. And so the, the zealots were very clever. They could mix in a crowd, carry their assault weapons, which were daggers, and uh, quietly in the marketplace simply slip one of those daggers into somebody and kill him. And by the time the person cries out, it's already blended into the crowd. And the zealots, the zealots are kind of the last stand. They end up controlling Jerusalem in the last four years that Israel existed as a nation because civil war broke out between the Jewish people and the Romans in 66 AD 66. And the zealots eventually take over Jerusalem. They were fanatical. They were crazy. And they end up leading the the city to be utterly destroyed by the Romans. And at the very end, these fanatics, these crazy people, some of them escaped and they went to Herod's fortress near the Dead Sea, Masada. I've been on top of Masada. And they made a suicide pact. Listen, suicide is always a sin. But in the insanity of the modern world, the Israeli army takes its oath of allegiance at Masada. Masada, where they committed mass suicide so as not to surrender to the Romans. Mass suicide. Suicide is always condemned in the Word of God. Yet these crazy zealots who had led to the destruction of Jerusalem, take their last stand at Masada, and they kill off their wives and their children, and then they select by lots who would kill off the last one and commit suicide. Some people hid out, and that's how we know what happened. So look at what's going on in Jerusalem in the days of Jesus. Here it's roughly 30 A.D., and Jesus is saying... He says, if they're in in verse um, 42, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, repentance. But now it is hidden from your eyes. Look at what he says. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Look at verse 44. You know, war is always a terrible thing. This is what happens in war. Verse 44, they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. God himself came to Jerusalem that day in A.D. 30. God himself came in A.D. 30. But you know, the coming of God also points to their times in history when there are opportunities to do something. And if we don't seize the day, it's too late. You know, I'm struck at something. If you turn over to the right a couple of chapters to Luke chapter 23 and verse 28, look at what Jesus says there. Luke 23 verse 28. And there, Jesus is on his way to be crucified. 
And a large number of people, verse 27, followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs which never bore, the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Israel at the time of Jesus in A.D. 30 is a green tree. There's no evident evidence that it's about to be destroyed. And in a time of prosperity, Jesus is sobbing. He's weeping. He's weeping because he knows what's coming. And as he has been beaten by cat tails and mocked and crowned with thorns, and he's on his way to Golgotha, to Calvary, to the place of the skull to be crucified, and the women are sobbing because he's a bloody mess. They're sobbing over him. And he said, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children. And so Jesus is profoundly aware of something, and that is the city's going to be destroyed, never ever for the temple ever to be rebuilt. Isn't that an amazing thing? One of the evidences of the resurrection of Christ is that, that temple has never been rebuilt. And you know, people talk about Israel being back in the land. Israel doesn't control the land of Israel today. What is the piece of real estate more than any other that represents ownership of Israel? It's Temple Mount. And as I was traveling down the road from the Mount of Olives to the city of Jerusalem, I could see very plainly what had once been the foundation of the temple. Not one stone had been left standing on another. The stones that are there, what's called the Wailing Wall, are simply foundation stones from what Herod built to keep that portion of the land intact. But not one stone was left on another. What do you see as you come down the Mount of Olives and you look down at the city of Jerusalem? You see two structures on the Temple Mount. The Mosque of Omar and the Dome of the Rock, where Muhammad's horse, Lightning, uh, left a hoof print. At least that's what Muslims believe, that Muhammad, in, the, in a night vision, rode his horse, Lightning, al-Baruch, and he traveled, and he touched down in Jerusalem and left a hoof print on the rock where once the Jewish temple had been. That's the Dome of the Rock. It's very sacred. Jewish people do not control that. What would happen if there were an attempt to rebuild the temple? I can tell you, because I earned my doctorate studying Islam. It would ignite the entire Muslim world, and it would kick off if the war in Ukraine doesn't kick it off, it would kick off World War III. Because every Muslim in the entire world would be duty-bound to defend this sacred place. The three holy sites are Mecca, number one, Medina, number two, and Jerusalem. It's 
their property, they believe, because of the Quran and because of the al-Hadith. They believe that. Do I believe that it might be attempted to be rebuilt? You never can tell, but I can tell you what will happen. The point that Jesus is making is this. This is a time of visitation. This is a time of warning. He's coming and he's saying, it's been hidden from your eyes. Brothers and sisters in Christ, pray for your families. Pray for yourselves. Pray for those you know and love, that their eyes be open to understand the signs of the times. You see, they couldn't see it. Because spiritual truth isn't figured out intellectually. Spiritual truth is caught more than it's taught. And so they couldn't see it. They failed to understand. And therefore, their children were murdered. If you want to read the historical account of the fall of Jerusalem from 66 to A.D. 70, there are unbelievably horrible things that happened in literal fulfillment of the curse sections in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Wow, horrible things. So where is it with you today? And I'm speaking particularly to those who may be watching this. The whole of the Bible is about having a relationship with God. And God offers you a relationship with himself, no longer in a tabernacle, no longer in a temple, but with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, in the words of the book of Ephesians, he seats you in the here and now, on the second day of April, in the year of our Lord, 2023. He seats you here and now in heavenly places. Because when you have Jesus, you have it all. And so you and I, brothers and sisters, are already seated in heavenly places. The great hill of God, the mountain of God, the paradise of God, Eden itself, he seats you there in heaven itself. So that here we are on Robinson Road in Texarkana, Texas, and yet, if you are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're united with him, part of you is on top of the paradise of God mountain. Part of you is there. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's a beautiful thing. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Of all the questions that you can ever be asked, that's the most important. Because to know him is to know peace. To know him is to know forgiveness. And to know him is to know a presence that will never leave you and never forsake you. And that helps us understand the Lord's Supper, which we're about to celebrate in this church. The Lord's Supper is for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how is Christ present in this meal? He's present in this meal the way he's present here and now. He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Very God of very God, begotten not made, at the right hand of the Father, he's there. And he invites you and me to have communion with him, to have fellowship with him, to experience his presence. He's present in the bread and the wine as he lifts you and me up to where he is in heaven and feeds you and me by the power of the Holy Spirit with his flesh and blood. Wow, it's a mystery. That's why we call it a sacrament. I don't know how Christ is present, but I know that he's present. And I know that he's present with me and with every true believer. And he invites us to come now 
and to celebrate his victory over the grave, his being the fulfillment of the tabernacle, his fulfillment of the temple itself, and experience the reality of himself in the Lord's Supper. May we pray. Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper to remember that this is a mysterious thing, a sacramentum, a pledge that you pledge to meet with us and feed us with yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit. 